1984 by George Orwell. Hello, everybody. It is currently 2.21 p.m. August 18th, 2019. And today, your host, SG, we're going to be talking about Chapter 2 in 1984. And I'm joined by some very special guests with me today. The first one being Dipey Dipey from the Fair Island of Jersey. Is that right? Is that right, Mike? Indeed, that is correct. And then our second guest with us, who is currently at work, but will interject when he can, is Fly Fisher, who made his debut on JohnLeBond.com, member Discord call. And might I say that was a fascinating call and an excellent debut from our guest on the West, somewhere around the Washington. Just to jump right into things now, chapter two bit of context winston was writing in the diary and he hears a knock on his door and he's about to go open the doorknob dipey had some interesting thoughts he's gonna start out with here so tell tell us dipey just uh give us a little overview of the passage and then uh just uh, go from there so the the passage reads as he put his hand to the doorknob winston saw that he had left his diary open on the table down with big brother was written all over it in letters almost big enough to be legible across the room it was an inconceivably stupid thing to have done but he realized even in his panic he had not wanted to smudge the creamy paper by shutting the book while the ink was wet now the reason i picked out this paragraph was in the the first chapter I mentioned how he had an unusual layout in his room which and it was this which allowed him to write his diary without being seen and I suggested that there may be a reason behind this he may be being provided the the ability to deal with his own thoughts while still in the system now when there's the knock on the door he leaves the diary open as he goes to the door and he realizes that someone may be able to see where it's written down with Big Brother. And I wondered if maybe his this is part of what is being done to allow him to have his thoughts, but his deeper self is reacting against it and almost tripping him up on purpose. And if the reason that this is happening is because of his hatred for Big Brother, if he was more neutral, so. He obviously has a very dark, a very black pill frame of mind at the moment. And perhaps it is this which is tripping him up. I, yeah, definitely speaks to the fact that his honest thoughts and beliefs are on that paper. And he's scared for anybody to like truly see or how he actually feels. Which sort of speaks to like the superficial nature and lack of intimacy and human relationships and like, you know, his bare naked thoughts. Like he's scared of even like someone being able to read that. It might not even have to be necessarily because, you know, he might get away to the thought police, but there actually is no intimate relationships it's just uh communication is simple enough just to you know get by with everyday functions and that fear of putting his thoughts down on paper is similar i mean i was like they say on radio shows long time listener first time caller for a long time with the act realm because you get there's that thought which is well if i put stuff down then someone's gonna come to get me and the first time winston puts his thoughts down this is the the first thought that comes to him yeah that's 
Yeah, it's a good way of putting it. That's definitely, uh, you know, when you get introduced to like Alex Jones or, uh, you know, who else is out there, you definitely you get this really, this fear injected into you that you can't really put these ideas out there or else they're going to come track you down, which is uh, obviously not true. And then something that I, two paragraphs down, it says, when he was like, and he calls her Miss Parson, then it has in the parentheses, you know, Miss was a word somewhat discontinent by the party. You were supposed to call everyone comrade. Some women use it instinctively. And um, honestly, this is not a direct correlation to our world today, but something like, you know, what pronoun do you go by? It's sort of similar to like, you know, you have to call everyone comrade. But obviously, this uh, whole pronoun shenanigans has not exactly been fully adopted yet, but it's definitely connection the attempt to dictate the words is the attempt to control the thought and then the problem that we have is even if we think we're not having our you know our pronouns or what words we can use dictated the fact still remains that all of our words are received from someone else rather than ourselves yeah exactly like I guess our uh, rhetoric, vocabulary or rhetoric, a lot of it may be uh, like something like kid. Like when you saw someone kid, you know, maybe like a hundred years ago, they didn't do that. But now all of a sudden this is in our vocabulary. Just, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, big brothers everywhere. And they also uh, like control your speech too. And to some degree it is, it is kind of a a commentary on how people self-censor themselves uh, nowadays, as you mentioned, you know, people are fearful uh, of using the wrong pronouns to address others. So it's this system kind of uh, weighs in on people and tries to control your language. And IP said that if you can, if you can control the language, it's basically mind control. It's basically thought control. So I think that's a good point as to how this is related. And perhaps that's the the beauty of the meme war, which has been discussed on the site recently in the honk pill, because in the meme war, it's almost in the meme war, it's almost leapfrogging, excuse the pun, over the received words, because you can use images, you're putting them into new ways. And in that sense, it's it's an aspect of the meme war is to destroy the the fact that all our words are received. I, I actually caught that when I was rereading it today. I was like, man, I didn't even pick up on the first time. I'm glad I did because <laughs> a lot of interesting thoughts going around. And then the next passage coming up, this one is one I picked out as well. It says, it's the children, said Miss Parsons, casting a half apprehensive glance at the door. They haven't been out all day. One thing that stuck out to me was that even though usually uh, adults are making technology, like, I don't know, car, radio, name it, it still has an, an appeal to young children, which kind of interesting on itself. I, I haven't really made any uh, made significant conclusions from it, but the fact that they're able to interact and engage with it says that it, it's not just something for adults. And, you know, then she said they hadn't been outside today. I'm like, yeah, that's basically today, too. <laughs> Kids are uh, they're playing Fortnite or, you know, watching netflix and you know staying inside so yeah it definitely uh takes place in the future this book or oh, they're on discord t- talking about 1984 but again it reminds me of like, the german it's before computers but the german romantic movement which was about a return to nature and a reaction against metaphysical speculation in the mind and it was more of a call to return to the only reality we have which is the natural world around us a way of controlling reality is to keep people away from 
the true reality. Yeah, and it kind of um, like begs the question, like, what is nature? Like, uh, it seems that you know, like uh, even us on Discord, it it's like something's been grafted onto nature, and it, it you know now we have to obey with these new abstract laws that were like previously not there so I'm, I'm sure we're still definitely new in this sort of society but at this point i don't, I don't really know how this is progress but you can't deny it but you just have to kind of, like work within it and then um after that it starts talking about miss parson's husband who worked at the ministry of truth with winston and it starts to describe him and then you had some comments that you wanted to put out there, and then I'll jump in after you. The section on page 28 was, Parsons was Winston's fellow employee at the Ministry of Truth. He was a fattish but active man of paralyzing stupidity, of mass of imbecile enthusiasms, one of those completely unquestioning, devoted drudges on whom, more even than on the thought police, the stability of the party depended. Now that, for me, could be an almost perfect description of an MPC and it's interesting if you then if you substitute in MPC for his words we can say that the stability of the party relies more on MPCs than the thought police in our world it's then it's not the CIA or MI5 or the paid shills that are perpetuating the system but the herd-like nature of MPCs for some self-publicizing in my recent are you in a cult video I, I I quote myself that the cult will not be brought down, you will live in its midst because it is born in the mind of the herd. And again, my feeling is that Winston may have been given the chance to simply free his mind from this system, but it, it is his hate of the system and perhaps also his hate of the NPCs because the description of Parsons has that uh, element of disdain to it, which is why the system in the end, despite giving him the chance for some freedom of mind, must bring him to love Big Brother. And then immediately following that uh, passage, it says, at 35, he had just been unwillingly evicted from the Youth League, and before graduating in the Youth League, he had managed to stay in the spies for a year beyond the statutory age. And that's, um, it's like, these adults that are not fully developed or fully matured which is a theme that you would see in brave new world you see it mentioned here like you imbecile enthusiasms you know he was 35 still in the youth league and he's like no i don't want to leave it really speaks to that and even being at work these guys are super into like these adults who are like 35 40 like yeah man we just went to harry potter world you know we love harry potter that shit was awesome and it, it really does seem a bit infantile you know wizardry magic potions spells all that stuff but that's uh pretty normal today i guess it's one more it's an escapism than facing the absurdity of the world well not the uh, the absurdity of the world as a nature but the absurdity of the system which is grafted onto the world yeah exactly and i guess it also would touch on like they need parsons as a useful idiot and i guess delaying his maturity it, or intellectual maturity, however you want to phrase it, that seems to be in their best interest. And I guess it would be in Parsons', Parsons best interest as well. So it allows him to accept his lot in life and to not really question it or maybe not even feel bad about it, you know, just be happy. 
you know, make make his life uh, less miserable. To make it slightly topical to the site, uh, I was just thinking as you were talking that there's almost a dichotomy of the wrong reactions being presented because as Winston is like the doomer in modern popular culture in that he sees the system but then he, he takes the black pill and dives far too far into it whereas um, Parsons is the one who just pretends it's not there and perhaps these are both the and he refuses to grow up and perhaps these are two false reactions to the world and the system as we find it it might lead on to the discussions ongoing discussions about the honk pill is perhaps would have been a better pill for winston to have taken exactly and that kind of segue to is another passage that i highlighted which starts as quote at the ministry he was employed in some subordinate post for which intelligence was not required but on the other hand, he was a leading figure on the sports committee and all other committees engaged in community hikes, spontaneous demonstrations, saving campaigns, and voluntary activities generally. And that that's exactly what I was saying. It's just it's somebody that's going to engage in kind of these just like trivial activities just to distract his thoughts from the absurdity that is on around him. And he never really channels his energy into something uh, like self-improving, self-improvement, but it's more directed to... Um, outlets that the state kind of provides like sports and hiking and whatnot and which i mean which is good because it's it won't actually threaten the system having his creative energy channeled into those sorts of mediums the state's perspective is a beneficial thing i have a slight confession to make is that i guess sometimes it is necessary to have some respite because i was knee deep in trying to research the hippocratic oh the blind alleys just got a bit too much <laughs> and i reacted by spending hours watching gordon ramsay rubbish food on kitchen nightmare clips on youtube so it's a slight confession but i guess sometimes it's necessary to have some brief respite from thinking about stuff oh oh yeah definitely i'm yeah i want to make it clear i am not making fun of anybody that does that I, you know i'm sure we all engage in these activities but it's more about like to what extent do you devote your energy to those sorts of activities? Like, are you that guy that goes to the sports game that, like, paints up your face and body and is just like, yeah, let's go, football! Or, you know what I mean? If it's this kind of passive way to disengage and maybe uh, think about something else, no, no, I, I'm, I'm not trying to attack anybody for those sorts of things. Oh, sorry. I, I didn't mean to suggest you were. I just, I was, I I was laughing to... No, 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 I know. But anybody listening... I was laughing to myself in my head about... Because after about, like, honestly, three hours, I was thinking to myself, what in, what in the hell's name am I doing? I feel like these passages are really very revealing just to the... Just to the state of culture nowadays, our modern culture is filled with these kind of these kind of individuals, these NPC type characters, and it talks to the fact that 
you know, we have this state of arrested development uh, whereby we have these grown adults who spend their time with, uh, like SG said, these these trivial things. They devote their intellectual energies. And I mean, just reflect on reflect on your experience. And I can reflect on mine, which is I see grown adults around me do these things all the time like uh sg said with the harry potter and folks getting all involved in like star wars fanboys and that type of thing or even you know nasa fanboys and and think about folks love to stay stay active in their college when they graduate they love to stay active with their colleges and and again just we have this culture of these these semi these semi uh grown ad- adults here with the the minds of of children again we just it's such in a, a state of arrested development where we have these grown adults who who occupy themselves with these really trivial and just very low-minded things exactly and then you know that's that's a party slogan right there ignorance is strength and that that's what i was saying earlier like the system <laughs> if you're in that like arrested develop childlike state of mind it allows it to function everyone here was born in this system people on you know, this website and who i'm speaking to of right now have grown out of that significantly but you know obviously we were all born in this culture so we're going to keep some of it but like as he, at, like to reiterate it's how much time and energy do you really devote to these trivial things just to keep it keep it things moving now the the children come into the room and they come into play. And then one thing that I picked up on was like both of them were dressed in blue shorts, gray shirts, and red neckerchiefs, which were the uniform of the spies. And then it says the little girl, like go, later on, it's like the little girl was imitating the boy. This may be a stretch, but to me, it kind of speaks to uh, the blurring of the genders. And they're, you know, they're both wearing the same clothes, same activity. You know, the spy group has boys and girls growing up on it together. We see these same things in our world, like boys and girls, they're both playing the same sports, you know, basketball, soccer. Now, now you got girls coming on the football team. Now, oh, now they want to play the same games as guys do. That honestly kind of like it, it hurts women because it, it doesn't allow them oh and men as well like it doesn't allow them to have their own identities they're not like two separate beings with maybe different drives and interests it's just the system really uh, creates this sort of conformity using the same section but on a slight tangent and I hadn't thought about it when I was reading it the first time because they're wearing the uniform of the spies now when I went to school in in private schools in the United Kingdom they have what's called the combined cadet force where the when you're in secondary school which I guess is the equivalent of high school you are in the army or the RAF or the navy section and the teachers are the officers and you are like attached to the actual armed forces and you do like marching practice and you do go on like exercises and you visit military bases and it just reminded me there were two types of people the people in the RAF section took it extremely seriously and kind of believed they were really in the RAF and would polish their shoes and were amazing at marching the navy section which 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 I was in treated it as a complete joke and basically we took the honk pill and thought it was like the height of hilarity what was going on and that was would trigger the people in the RAF who took it who took it seriously and it just I mean that description those children reminds me of them because you know put on a uniform give them a given the lowliest of ranks and certain people LARPing as it's called just they take on that role and 
the people who took the honk pill seem to be fairly untouched by it. Yeah, that's funny. The honk pill, like, it's not not taking yourself too serious or your job too serious. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that doesn't seem to be most people. But that that's a good segue into your next quote. You know, people taking things serious. You know, the kid pretending to, you know, arrest Winston. Oh, yes. He, he shouts, you're a traitor, yelled the boy. You're a thought criminal. You're a Eurasian spy. I'll shoot you. I'll vaporize you. I'll send you to the salt mines. When I was a kid, we'd always play play war games, you know, like we try and get the Germans or you play cops and robbers, etc. And obviously what the boy is saying in a certain world, you could interpret that as a very harmless thing but when you're reading through the book and it could be Winston's frame of mind but I think it's more than that because of everything that's led up to it it takes on an extinister tone to it and it leads on to um, when they start talking about Goldstein Goldstein bellowed the boy or oh, that's and then after that they they talk about the kids wanting to go to see the hanging of war criminals and obviously anyone who's grown up in the UK or from what I can gather in America or probably the entire world whether you're in India with Kashmir you're brought up from childhood with fear programming and it's such a strong programming that the war hoax is even if you can see you can see that the footage is looks ridiculous you can understand if that if nukes are a hoax and it's seen, and if all the governments are the same then how can war be real but that level of programming from childhood is perhaps what makes the war hoax so difficult to completely get one's mind around yeah and you know speaking of honk pill uh, these kids in the book uh, definitely did not take the honk <laughs> they they uh they definitely didn't take the honk pill. I like you said, like games like cops and robbers. I know probably you guys have it too. There's a game called like Battleship, but I guess it kind of just speaks to the overall like presence of like war themed games that we have in our cultures. Again, in my school, we had a statue to Sir Galahad and has all the names of everyone that fell in the war. Our houses, which are what you play sports teams in, are all named after people who won the Victoria Cross during the First World War. On Remembrance Sunday, and you have to wear your poppy. If you're in the CCF, you wore your, your uniform. Then after the rem Remembrance Service, everyone marches past the statue and you turn to the statue and you salute as you go past. I mean, it's just like layer upon layer of uh, programming. Yeah, and we did the same thing. You know, we had the Pledge of Allegiance. There's there's a few other songs that I don't really remember anymore. Then, you know, at, a, at an early age, you already taught about like World War, th the World Wars and all the other phony wars that go on out there. Yeah, it's really... Oh, sorry, but just for the honk pill, about every two years, someone would climb up the statue of Sir Galahad, who is, who is one of uh, King Arthur's knights, and take the sword out and put a beer can <laughs> instead, an empty beer can. And there'd always be an assembly the next day about how everyone was shocked, but oh, clearly it was, it was the hilarity would reverberate round the, the schoolboys for a while until the janitor had managed to work out how to get up there and put a sword back in. And then, I mean, another thing that to kind of build off, you know, the Goldstein bellowed the boy as the door closed on him. But what struck Winston was the look of helpless fright on the woman's grayish face. I, I revisited this passage yesterday and I kind of added to my notes 
and I'll just kind of go through it right now. It just it demonstrates how uh, little influencer control parents have on their kids and their interests. But meanwhile, the telescreen has a much greater degree of influence and the boy here is like he's taking the pill like he's already bought into the goldstein propaganda and it's just like it made me think about our own society it's like okay start schooling whatever the fuck that is you know you know brainwashing (laughs) at like you know some kids start at preschool so like age of three you know you're going to be put in this school with random kids you don't know but and then some random teacher that you know they just got out of college they're like 25 whatever they're going to spend around eight hours a day in this daycare while mom and dad are at work like so you know from like from the beginning of this child maturing process they're not even under the influence of their own parents they're at the school which is an extension of the state right and then you know they get home, what are they going to do? Maybe spend an hour or two with their family if mom and dad are back. If not, if they don't go home, okay, they're going to do the school-sanctioned activities like basketball, chess, or, you know, what have you. They're not at school, but they come home and, you know, mom and dad are tired. They're going to probably go consume state media that's on television, on their computer, their iPad, their Xbox. They're going to be on Discord. Then they grow into their teenage years. They start hating their parents. And that hate for their parents turns into love with their friends because they, uh, they're they going to support each other and their state-influenced belief systems. Whatever they may be for that era, some parents, you know, they're more liberal and accepting or, you know, some are more conservative not accepted. <laughs> so to wrap up their development from roughly the age of three till 18, the state agencies like school, their friend in the media has a much higher degree of influence on the parents and the parents, they can't really exert much influence because they have to work just to pay bills and to survive and even like feed their children. So things like families and church, like communities, like these things do not exist. These have been predominantly substituted by media, mass media. It's, it's, it satisfies our desire for interaction and to feel a part of something but it's really kind of an artificial remedy. And then, you know, now they're 18 years old, time to go off to college where they're going to spend the next nine to 12 months at school with a bunch of other kids, you know, supporting the same whack beliefs. And then now you're, the, the, the college systems are going to be pushing even more uh, indoctrination down your throat. This is where at colleges, you know, where they get a higher education to perform a job like a good robot. <laughs> probably cut that out probably cut that out but a large amount of them will this is a period where they're gonna form their alcohol and drug habits which are gonna enter with them in the workforce it's really just kind of you know you're, you're going through the meat grinder so now we've gone from the age of three till roughly 22 years of age and again the state is the predominant force that is shaping the minds of young kids, up, up and coming adults. And then now you're done with college, you're gonna enter the workforce, you're gonna be spending eight to 12 hours a day in the office. You're gonna think your coworkers are super nice, but it, all of this is really just a super fin- superficial friendly ship. Oh, you hear terms like, yeah, my coworkers are my family, <laughs> that sort of nonsense. And then that individual is gonna go on 
They're going to get married. They're going to be producing fresh human ensembles for the state to mold and utilize as they see fit. It's just the cycle is going to continually repeat itself. I hopefully kind of explained here that even from the stages of the development and then to when they have their own kids, they're, they're exerting no influence on them. And it's mostly done by the state. And then now when they have kids of their own, this, the same process just repeats over again. I would only add, if it's not the state, then the, the neo-reactionaries have the concept of the cathedral as being the cultural arm of the sovereign power. And they include in that, you know, the state propaganda, but also all mass media, the universities, the quangos, the which are non-governmental organizations like these large international charities. And so even if you're not getting these things from the state, it's still part of, of the cathedral. I'm stealing this from someone else, and I can't remember who it was, but they pointed out that if your child is watching hours of children's television programming, the parent doesn't know who is talking to the child because someone has an agenda. It's not a neutral force, and someone is scripting that, and it's essentially a stranger talking to your child for hours and hours a day. And that parent would probably get upset if their child was on the street chatting to a stranger for hours and hours a day but they don't think about it when it's the stranger is speaking to them through the television and the only other thing i would add which kind of sums up this whole section is an old jesuit quote now if jlb is listening back i must confess that i didn't do my due diligence and check the accuracy of the provenance of this quote but supposedly the jesuit quote is give me the boy and i'll give you the man yeah, and that was also like an excellent example of doublethink where each stranger talking to the, the child through the television, that's accepted. But, you know, if, if this child's talking to people on the streets, now we got an issue here. <laughs> yeah, and it just, just seems to me, just to kind of add some points onto, uh, onto the conversation here, that that the TV is is raising the children. And, and as was said, the parents wield so little influence in the development of the child, it, it is literally like the TV is raising the child and, and forming the child's beliefs. And when you consider this and you, and you consider what what SG said, as far as the process that, that these, these humans go through, is it any wonder, given that these children are, are watching the TV programming at an early age and then they're off to school and they have such little social interaction with their parents and, and their family and community. Is it any wonder that this realm is filled with so many NPCs? And I think, you know, anybody looking at this thing rationally would say, no, it's a wonder that it's amazing that we even have the group of folks we do in this call, in this chat room here, that, that have recognized and, and woken up to all the nonsense. And we've broken free from the programming because this programming is so deeply rooted in the inhumans nowadays. Again, you got the TV raising the child from early years and then the child goes off and just gets the standard programming in, in school. And then they're off to college to become these these full full blooded NPCs, the grown adults trapped in, in perpetual adolescence that, that can't elevate their thinking and, and 
they remain trapped in the guise of, of football and of all these other lower forms of entertainment. It's just, it is a wonder that anybody wakes up from this. And, and given all this programming, it's, it's no wonder that parents are fearful of their children like this, uh, like, the, like the passage uh, demonstrates. And it is a wonder that anybody wakes up from it. So I see the natural progression here, and, and you see that, that early seed being planted in, in the child to, to raise what eventually becomes a full-fledged, sycophantic NBC, uh, NPC, a, a full-fledged supporter of the system. Yeah, it can definitely be like a, a pretty big black pill, because we're, we're, we're seeing these words black and white on a page, but then when you recognize these behaviors in the world where there's like color, depth, all these different things with it, it can definitely like be a shock to your system. You're like, holy shit. I would, everybody on this website like used to be knee deep into that crap, but yeah, I somehow pulled out of it. Not, not sure how, but thankfully we did. Yeah, I guess when, when the state raises the kid and it sort of speaks to the arrested development that we see, Orwell makes it clear in the passages that like this mom is hopeless. Like she's like, yeah, I can't really do anything. I, I've definitely seen this in my day-to-day -day life, not only the the, uh, the hopeless parents, but these childlike adults. It's it's really uh, it's it's a bit of a black pill at first, but it it's like everything in our life is sort of industrialized. Whether you know the foods we eat, the cars that are manufactured. And it, essentially today, humans are just objects. They're just, they're going through the industrial process of like schooling, whatever, you know what I mean? Just to brainwash them to be a good uh, robot. You can probably cut that out. You can probably cut that out. It's essentially to perform jobs. It's like, I, I'm in my office printing something and the printer is like what job do you want me to perform this is a printer but an engineer they use the same rhetoric so the same rhetoric that you'll see on a machine is the same thing that is spoken everyday life and so it, it kind of just shows like we interact with machines so much that even our culture our vocabulary our, our human how we upbring humans it's all so machine like i believe that definitely promotes unconsciousness my only thoughts to add were in all this was when one thinks about then how much are the parents to blame for allowing them to watch television then you think well they're to blame but then they went through similar things themselves and the easiest way to express my thoughts on that is I'm going to just quickly they're very short read three short standards by Philip Larkin on his poem this be the verse and apologies for the profanities you may want to skip ahead in this podcast if you don't like a little bit of swearing. So, this be the verse by Philip Larkin. They fuck you up, your mum and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were fucked up in their turn by fools in old-style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throats. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out early as you can, and don't have any kids yourself. Yeah, wow, that's a full-on quote. 
I uh, I am current. I'm a young adult currently living with my parents, and this has become a reality. I've grown to accept, you know, even though they themselves have been indoctrinated, and they will push me to, you know, go go get the job, go sit in the office, just go go be a slave. I know that they don't necessarily they don't know better, but there's absolutely no way at this point in their lives of getting them. So it's uh, definitely a process to kind of accept that for what they are and just to really know that they mean well these they, they really do but they, they just don't know any better to really put blame on them is sure it could be applied there but also I, I think it's a bit harsh because you know this cycle has probably been going on for generations at this point so I'm almost expecting that my parents were supposed to hit the lottery and just you know break out of the conditioning so that I could have a good life but you know why don't I just take that responsibility you know, as I've already done in my own life and just tried to bring myself up. And only the honk pill will set you free. Only the honk pill. I take like 20 a day. <laughs> but there's another passage that later on, it's like, with the children, he thought the wretched woman must lead a life of terror. And it's like, I can just imagine something like, no, mom, I'm not eating that meatloaf. I'm a vegan now. You're destroying the earth with your oppressive ways. I just want to eat my vegan vac and cheese. I'm... I'm sure that probably um, has an influence on the parents since they have no control of their kids. You know, to appeal stuff like, oh, you're hurting the planet, you know that? Yeah, you know, it might, it probably even influences them to change their own dietary habits. And this leads on to the, the classic quote of, it was almost normal for people over 30 to be frightened over their own children. And uh, S SG, being, being someone over 30 and you being someone under 30, I'm always slightly worried about <laughs> coming out with my old-fashioned ways that you're going you're to report me to the thought police. I know, but <laughs> sorry, uh, I have a tendency to amuse myself. Uh, but my, my sister has children, and they're in secondary school now, I think, like 12 and 11. And I, I have told them a couple of times, what you'll learn at secondary school is about how your uncle is a terrible person. Yeah, yeah it, and, um, you know, even parents were, are, are going to be, like, secondhandly uh, influenced by, by their, from their kids. And then it uh, kind of segues into, yeah, they hate their parents, but they love the party. And you can uh, take it from here, Dipey. Hey, I'll add a personal anecdote that might be uh, might be amusing, and and of course TNG might need to cut this out. But uh, on a related note, this uh, really does remind me of my brother. I've had conversations with him, and like to consider that he's thoughtful, thoughtful person. But you know, having these conversations about like the Anne Frank Diary and about the six the six grillion, and man, he he got so upset and like violent, got violent with me, and and I'm like, brother. You, you were literally taking the TV's. You're taking the TV's word over mine. You're literally supporting the TV over your own family, over your own blood. I mean, that was a pretty, pretty hard pill to swallow when I realized that. Damn, indoctrination is that deep. My own, my own family would come after me. Yeah, that's what I was trying to get at earlier too. It's like I, I'm going to be pretty harsh, but. Yeah, families don't really exist. It, there, it's uh, really like a very superficial connection. That's just, I, our culture is very superficial. Like people can be married their whole lives, but they're they're never going to be intimate with each other on like, you know, how they personally really feel. I, I've kind of just come to accept like, yeah, no, that actually is people. Like 
they do not have a deeper part to them. Whether some hide it or like some don't have it, I, I, I think that's most likely the case now is that they don't even have it. That's right, SG. I, I was actually gonna gonna cut you off there and be like, man, that they, they just don't have it, man. They're not sharing it because they don't have it. Seriously, I think, man, what what are they just? These people aren't just aren't sharing with each other. They just don't don't know each other that well. People are so disconnected from one another. But man, it's I, I'm telling you, that's just it's not there. And it's like the things they connect for are things that are like on the market. Like, yeah, man, that I like that show too. Yeah, man, I'm a huge fan of the Vikings. They're like, yeah, I love fucking Head and Shoulders shampoo. You know, like you know what I mean? They they connect over like economic products. It's it's not even like they have to connect on a personal human level anymore. And it's just it, it just speaks to how, like I said, like mass media is that substitute for these family and community connections. It's like the TV is your big brother. That's the daddy. That's where he gets his ideas. Daddy TV told me this stuff. Oh, how dare you question father? But it's like it's just a fucking screen. And there's there's some. Um, whoever the powers that be just pumping these ideas out there. And it's just been going for so long now, unquestioned that it's, uh, kind, it's kind of, uh, just say strange. There's something in Stephen Fry's rather strange uh, autobiography where he remembers when he was a child and he went to visit another a friend's house and he noticed that they bought a different brand of bleach than his family bought. Now obviously as a child he had nothing to do with which brand of bleach that his mother bought, but he said he said that he was shocked and he thought, how could someone else buy a different black brand of bleach? And he looked down on that family ever afterwards. Yeah, it's just a really uh, superficial culture. But in the meantime, I, I found where I was in my notes. And this next section kind of summarizes what we've been discussing. So, I mean, it may, I don't know if anyone else has anything to add to it, but it summarizes the last part of the conversation. And it's about the children. On the contrary, they adored the party and everything connected with it. The songs, the processions, the banners, the hiking, the drilling with dummy rifles, the yelling of slogans, the worship of Big Brother. It was all a sort of glorious game to them. All their ferocity was turned outwards against the enemies of the state, against foreigners, traitors, saboteurs, thought criminals. It was almost normal for people over 30 to be frightened of their own children, and with good reason. For hardly a week passed in which the Times did not carry a paragraph describing how some eavesdropping little sneak, child hero was the phrase generally used, had overheard some compromising remark and denounced its parents to the thought police. Yeah, one thing that stood out to me with that, it's like, they're willing to rebel against their parents, but they would never rebel against the authority of the state. Like, he'll rebel against his parents, but, you know, he'll trust the TV. <laughs> Somehow had this rebellious attitude only directed towards, you know, their, their, their family around them. And it's also like double think in a sense, because it's like, yeah, you're, 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 you'll do it under this instance, but not another. And it just shows that the state is their preferred authority and that like they actually love them look up to them and like all the different activities and things that they have to offer and they're just gonna follow the party line there was a story in the papers over here recently about apparently edinburgh up in scotland the edinburgh council is allowing school children to have one day of leave a year to go on climate change protests and even a while ago that would have made me so angry for so long but 
I had, I think I had flicked the radio on driving back from, <laughs> driving back from milking and it amused me so much. I was chuckling the whole way back about these more, <laughs> these moron kids and the moron counsellors giving them the day off and them all patting each other on the back about what great people they are. And then it made me think of when I was a child because they started, you know, environmental propaganda back then. And I can remember back at the time thinking, I just, I just don't care about this and it seems to be the most bizarre thing. But I don't know if it was an early sign that I was gonna see things differently. But we used to have a TV show called Newsround in the UK with John Craven and it was news for children and they'd always do vox pops with children on the street and I always spent my time watching them thinking these children are complete morons who cares what they think about anything yeah it's <laughs> and the system like really promotes this sort of people with no any sort of experience whatsoever are they, these are the people they want to give voices to <laughs> uh, it's just a it's just a joke man <laughs> this is silly you know, and I think we can see real-life examples of what, what Orwell was trying to communicate here in the modern gender confusion, trans movement here, which is they're having these, these transsexual story times with kids, and they're starting to create uh, children's stories with I have two daddies type children's stories and, and, and all this sort of thing. And it's they're introducing this into schools where there's not two genders, now there's 30 genders, and in a few short years, these kids, when they hear the, the old-fashioned old folks calling, referring to males and females by him or her, they'll be, they'll be going and reporting it to authorities that they're not using the right pronouns to refer to people. They'll be reporting these things at their work. So uh, I feel like we can see modern-day example of this. Yes, exactly. And that's what I was like pointed out at the very beginning of this discussion. Like Orwell's version of it was comrade, but in our world it's he whatever Zed or whatever that crap is, man. And I, I can I can say from my own anecdotal evidence, like at my workplace, yes, like these people are there that like I'm gender non binary and their emails they'll be like, Here are the pronouns that I go by and it's just yeah, it it, it seems that it's probably at the early stages of development. I'm not sure how much these planners expect, how much adoption they expect, or what, at what point do they push it more or change the game plan because it's not working, but it's definitely prevalent. And, and we can agree the system's pushing it, right? I mean, this stuff's all over your TV. It, it wouldn't be on your TV if it wasn't intentional. Oh, and I should also add, like, I even in my high school, I knew somebody, he had two moms. So <laughs> it, it, it's, it's real. Like, it's there, it's there, man. In my recent YouTube video on history is Orwellian dream, I included a quote by Orwell from later on in 1984, which is actually about history, but I think it applies here as well, is all that was needed was an unending series of victories over your own memory. Reality control, they called it. And I guess that's what's going on, is that I've seen it in so many people I know that they used to think one way about something and then the propaganda is gen is gradually brought in you know there'll be something in a soap opera it will be on the TV program and one side will always be the baddies and the more liberal side will be the more open accepting people etc and 
people as they watch this, they perform on themselves this unending series of victories over their own memory and its reality control because I think JLB has mentioned that in the past, even when things were taboo or frowned upon or even just laughed at, it wasn't that people were going around getting slaughtered on the streets for their own certain proclivities. In fact, I think often if there was a man wearing a dress like 20 years ago, it was just the height of hilarity. It wasn't... I mean, we used to being programmed on TV that there was gangs of neo-Nazis going around beating them up, and I'm sure it maybe happened once in the blue moon. But in general, it was laughed at. And nowadays, one side is this unending victories of memories, and the other side we get so upset about it and blackpilled that the two almost work together um, so this people forget that it wasn't that people were these tr like hate mongering foaming at their mouth people tracking down anyone who looked like they might be a little bit effeminate it was just viewed in more in a different way yeah it's more of a gradual process they're not like sending people to the salt mines <laughs> that dudes that are wearing dresses it's more it's just more gradually phased in and then after that it, it talks about winston and maybe a dream he had meaning o'brien you had some thoughts about that oh uh, yeah so the quote is there's two quotes and the first is a memory and it's years ago how long was it seven years it must be he had dreamed that he was walking through a pitch dark room and someone sitting to one side of him had said as he passed we shall meet in the place where there is no darkness then a bit later on there's the another quote about which goes he could not now remember whether it was before or after having the dream that he had seen o'brien for the first time nor could he remember when he had first identified the voice as o'brien's but at any rate the identification existed it was o'brien who had spoken to him out of the dark and it made me think of an idea i've been playing with of this sh a shared dream-like nature of reality and also with sync because he can't quite tell if he had the dream first about O'Brien, then he met O'Brien, or whether he projected it backwards. So I just, for me, it seemed to have that, even a, a sense of interpretation of sync is, sync is what you read into it, or perhaps it's your own self which is creating the syncs. Speaking of syncs, uh, you talked about that one that you had in the pre-call, you should, uh, it'd be a good time to bring it up now. Yes, the edition of 1984, which I'm using, an online one, the person who has published it has done their own cover, and it has a photo of the London, the London cityscape. And on the picture, right in the middle, is Guy's Hospital Tower. And Guy's Hospital Tower is the hospital... I was at medical school, which I was thrown out of about 16, 17 years ago now. And at the time, I guess, I felt like the sky was falling in on my head. I was very black-pilled at the time and I thought my life was over but if it hadn't have been for that event happening the unusual course of my life would not have happened and I probably wouldn't be sitting here now talking about 1984 and even the way I got thrown out was a series of bizarre occurrences which involved having an old three and a half inch floppy disk put in the wash the day before I had to hand in an essay and some strange occurrences but back then I felt like Winston does now which is why is all this going on but now it seems all a bit lighter yeah, and I, I guess for the to help the viewers see the image, uh, that'd be something we could uh, attach 
to the post when we put it up online just so they can get an idea and then it, it talks about how like winston has never been able to feel sure even after his morning's flash of the eyes it was still impossible to be sure whether o'brien was a friend or an enemy and you had uh, made a connection with the lie system do you want to talk about that too Oh yes, so he can't be certain if O'Brien is a friend or an enemy. And it made me think of the lie system in that we're never given enough information to know if connections are real or not. And also the loneliness of the PC Winston in, in an NPC world pushes him to be not concerned if O'Brien is a friend or an enemy, just so long as there's another person out there who thinks like him, who reflects. Because just to finish off the quote, it says, he couldn't be sure whether O'Brien was a friend or an enemy, and nor did it seem to matter greatly. So there was just those two points. One, that sense that, and it's even perhaps more existential, because we can never be certain of anything outside of ourselves. So there's a sense in the world that we're cut off from other people, and we're struggling to find out if there's something in them which is like us. Yeah, and like what that quote made me think about was like, say when I'm in the workplace, when I get a compliment, like, oh, that was a good presentation, or I recently left a job, so they, they told me, oh, yeah, here you know, man, let's stay in touch. Like I, I mentioned earlier in the call, this superficiality, which is tied into professionalism, it's really hard to know when when I get that compliment. It's like, does this person, is, is this even genuine? Or are, are they just saying that to be nice and out of, like, professionalism? And at, at the end of the day, you don't really know. But as far as my own actions, I can't accept any of these compliments because I have really no idea if they're truthful or not. And uh, it really just it, it speaks volumes to what Winst- to what Orwell, I should say, what he was uh, thinking about. And then after that, it, it, it's going to switch a little bit. And it says, the voice from the telescreen paused. A trumpet call, clear and beautiful, floated into the stagnant air. The voice continued rascally. Attention, your attention, please. A newsflash has this moment arrived from the Malabar front. Our forces on South India have won a glorious victory. I am authorized to say that the action we are now reporting may well bring the war within measurable distance of its end. Here is the newsflash. It really sounds out of something like Brave New World. It's like, okay, you know, it's that that rhythm, that pattern coming back into play again. It's really just instilling fear into people. And I guess that also shows like the era that this book was in when there's just like war after war. And I think the new phase we're moving into is school shooting after school shooting or mass shooting. (laughs) And it's just like, it's just this, this thing that's, continually pumped out and it's used to direct and influence people in whatever the agenda is this also gives you an idea of what those kids are children i should say those children are exposed to when they are acting very violent and aggressive towards winston and what's interesting on this page this section of the book is after this announcement of the glorious victory winston obviously he's able to see through things and his first thought is bad news coming and sure enough following on 
a gory description of the annihilation of a Eurasian army. The next news is that the chocolate rations would be reduced. So there's this constant up and down and he just he can see the programming. Here's the victory, here's the rationing. After this, there's some victory music for Oceana Tis For Thee, where you must stand to attention. And the Oceana Tis For Thee gives way to lighter music. So here they're being given they got this glorious victory then there's the patriotic music then there's some lighter music so they have perhaps a brief second of respite and as the lighter music's playing he says the day was still cold and clear so it's cold it's calm there's some light music and the first thing that happens next is that a rocket bomb exploded with a dull reverberating roar and if we find is a spoiler alert as we find out later in, in the book that the, the rockets are, well, they're a hoax in that they are being perpetrated by their own government. So this whole sequence of ups and downs, good news, bad news, some peace, then a rocket bomb going off is being organised by the system. So yeah, they, they're never going to have a section of clear thought or balance. It's a constant existence of low-level fear because if this is being done to you the whole time, even when you have these lighter musics or a cold, clear day, you never know when this rocket bomb's gonna go off. And in us, I think, the fear programming is different, perhaps more discombobulating, because in our daily experience, the world is peaceful. We don't have rocket bombs going off, but we are presented in the news with stories about horrific events that we rarely, if ever, experience. And even though we don't experience them, we are still expected to be perpetually fearful. So our rocket bombs going off aren't actually in our cities, but then when we, if we have a peaceful state of mind, we turn on the telescreen and then we see the rocket bombs going off. And you can also see a connection to the, you know, the lie system here that you're not really given any evidence to support or deny the claim. It, you're, it's really based on like how you feel about the information presented. And it's been, um, people are conditioned to just accept the authority of people, of, you know, whatever the TV says. And then uh, after that, it, it goes into the sacred prin principles of Ingsoc, New Spink, Double Think, the mutability of the past. And you know, Winston talking about he felt as though he was wandering in the forests of the sea bottom, lost in a monstrous world where he did him, where he himself was the monster. He was alone. The past was dead. The future was unimaginable. And you had a couple comments on those. Oh yeah, I mean that that whole section to me. I mean the first section on the sacred principles of Ingsoc, new speak, double think, and mutability of the past. I mean obviously there's political correctness, but I saw lots of those things in the humorous hoax admissions have been found in various uh, articles written on the website. It's not just the mutability of the past in the in the history hoax, but there's the double thing in that when you you see the hoax admissions right being written by academics and on one hand they know about it and the on the other hand they're completely true believers in the history yeah history seems to be fairly well described in those uh, sacred principles of Ingsoc that next section which you quoted seems to me to be an allegory for a PC 
lost in an MPC world, organised along the principles of insufficient information that may not have been obvious to someone on the first hearing, but if I just read it back again, it may seem more obvious why I see that as an allegory for a PC lost in an NPC world. He felt as though he was wandering in the forests of the sea bottom, lost in a monstrous world where he himself was the monster. He was alone. The past was dead. The future was unimaginable. What certainty had he that a single human creature now living was on his side? And what way of knowing that the dominion of the party would not endure forever yeah it seems that i mean throughout the book like winston is oh i shouldn't say winston (laughs) i should say the author of this book is he's concerned with where is this leading to like i i think there's some quote attributed to orwell like it's just some giant boot stomping on humanity or something like that and yeah i would say to mold and shape these humans ensembles in the technical environment that we are in i would say the author sees that as a bit dehumanizing it's really hard to have any meaningful connections with people since they're at this stage of arrested development and they're just fully bought into the propaganda that is pushed out there it's like i said like where does this lead to he he, winston can't really live in the moment he's really like what happened in the past is it even real did it actually happen and it's like where's the future where's that going I wondered if he'd fallen for a slight utopianism because we'll see it later on in the chapter when he writes in his diary to the future or to the past to a time when thought is free when men are different from one another and do not live alone to a time when truth exists and what is done cannot be undone I mean the future does that even exist at the moment it's it's a no place and he's writing to a time which for who he knows will never exist and perhaps if he hadn't have been so concerned about the future a place which doesn't yet exist he may have done better in the present exactly and then we'll we'll touch on that again in a little bit but then it moves into the three-party slogans war is peace freedom is slavery ignorance is strength and i think something we really touched at this call is the ignorance is strength like keeping their adults in body but their children in mind that would uh, definitely be a, a good definition for ignorance strength uh, anything stick out to you new that's from war is peace or freedom is slavery nothing new on those two just on ignorance is strength it seems that nature the way that we're made that anything any real truth beyond our own experience is a hoax you know the truth of community etc is obsessed with having definite truth outside of their own experience and or railing against people who have say they have truth outside their experience if we accept that we have our experience and that is reality perhaps even the word truth and lie is is a dichotomy to lead us away from the reality which we experience so ignorance is almost something which is just the state of the world the trick here is taking ignorance from just taking reality of the way that we find ourselves in the world and then turning it into a form of mind control. Yes, yes, excellent thoughts there. And then it's after that, the passage goes, he took a 25 cent piece out of his pocket. There too, in tiny clear lettering, the same slogans were inscribed. And on the other face of the coin, the head of Big Brother. 
even from the coin, the eyes pursued you on coins, on stamps, on the covers of books, on banners, on posters, on the wrappings of the cigarette packet, everywhere. For me, my thoughts on that, it's like on all uh, U.S. currency, it says, in God we trust. And it's like we're, you know, in the Pledge of Allegiance, we're one nation under God. But it's like, who's God in this case? Are the people that create the money God because, like, you trust them? Are, are they God because you go to work for the money they create and you put your belief and your life energy into this, you know, their creation? There's a lot of uh, parallels in uh, the world we live in. Your God is whoever you worship. In the world we live in, it, it's fairly clear what people generally worship. And it is usually something which, again, to refer, it's not just the state, just to refer back to the neo-reactionary concept of the cathedral, which involves all of these different branches of the sovereign power. And most people are willingly worship that every day of their lives. Yeah, and it, it makes me think about the Bible in, like, the false light, the false God. Yeah, that is what <laughs> the more majority of people believe in. They follow a false light. That Well, that links into the esoteric idea of that, the slight Luciferian idea of the only real light that you should worship is the light from yourself. And But just that paragraph continued from where you left it off with always the eyes watching you and the voice enveloping you asleep or awake working or eating indoors or out of doors in the bath or in bed no escape and then nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters inside your skull when i first read that last sentence i wrote down on my notes this is true even in our own world and then when i was rereading my notes before this call i thought to myself well is this true have I fallen for a slightly pessimistic view? Because is the only freedom I have inside my skull. And it seems that this is a slightly materialistic view, whereas it's my mind, my consciousness is an epiphenomenon of my brain or of matter, and that the entire universe is contained in my skull. And if you travel to the farthest boundaries of the universe, you would get to you get to the inside of my skull. And so that would be true if I had that view. But then if I have the view, which is that a more empirical view, which is the, the what everything I know is within my mind, I have no experience of anything outside of my mind, then everything is within my mind and I'm not limited to these few cubic centimeters, then if we include sync and perhaps the idea that the world is the co-creation of shared dreamers, or of lucid dreamers, then the only reason why I would be limited to the few cubic centimeters inside my brain is if I'm, I'm asleep in my dream, or if I'm dreaming without attention, whereas if I'm dreaming lucidly in a similar way to the book the film uh, Waking Dream, then in, in actual fact, my freedom is not limited there. It's only limited because of fear. And that's what all the propaganda of Big Brother on the coins looking at you everywhere is to make you forget that you're not inside, your mind is not just inside of your brain as an epiphenomenon, but every experience you've ever had is the world inside your mind, so your freedom is beyond your skull. Wow, that was a heavy hitter. There's a lot to unpack there. I'm gonna have to... <laughs> Sorry. 
No, that's good. I'll have to probably re-listen to this once it's published, but very good. Very good. And then it continues on to, how could you make an appeal to the future when not a trace of you, not even an anonymous word scribbled on a piece of paper could physically survive? And then you beg the question, why need to appeal to the future? Why not appeal to yourself? What what's this what's this fantasy world that he's needing to appeal appeal to? I, I can I mean if you were in that situation it's not surprising and I imagine I would do even worse than Winston. But just looking at it from a removed position, what is this need to appeal to the future? Yeah, I don't I couldn't answer that. And then yeah, this <laughs> You must. <laughs> you, you, you must answer my question. So, don't worry, it, it was rhetorical. No, I know, it's good to have a laugh. And then, you know, you know, when he writes in his diary, he says the same thing. To the future, to the past, to a time when thought is free, when men are different from one another and do not live alone. To a time when truth exists and what is done cannot be undone. From the age of uniformity, from the age of solitude, from the age of Big Brother... From the age of double think greetings. And then, you know, my comment was, Hey, Winston, what's up, man? <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> uh, I, I really like that. That's a really uh, interesting diary passage that the author decided to put in the book. And but he even uses the word paradise, you know, the a future where the all the problems of the world are solved and everything is brought back to its original goodness. Yeah, he's really falling for utopianism. Just on Discord, not, not everyone's on Discord, so JLB had posted some videos by a chap called Prince of Zimbabwe, who does videos on, like, memes regarding doomers and their life. And Winston really remi reminds me of the Prince of Zimbabwe's videos on the life of a doomer. So if anyone's interested, it's an interesting, well, for me, an interesting accompaniment to the beginning of 1984. Yeah, that's a good, good you brought that up. We can make sure to include a link to the Prince of Zimbabwe's work in the, in the post. And then uh, it comes, the next passage is, the consequences of every act are included in the act itself, he wrote. Thought crime does not entail death. Thought crime is death. My thoughts on that, uh, they were, it's like, if you eat from the forbidden fruit, surely ye will die. To rebel against what you are told is to live. You will die only to be reborn again, aware of your nakedness in the world. To rebel against the world is to die and be reborn. In the Bible passage in Genesis, there are some commentators on that passage who say that Adam effectively fell, well, Adam and Eve effectively fell in their thoughts before they actually carried out the deed. So uh, one could see that in that Genesis passage, they committed thought crime before they actually committed the act itself. And with that, we've reached the end of the chapter. Do, does Dipe or Fly Fisher want to put any final comments? All right. Yeah, thanks. I was going to acquiesce to you there. But um, yeah, just to, just to kind of unpack some of that, and I'll, I'll try to keep my thoughts uh, pretty concise here. That last bit was full on. I mean, 
it, it there's just so much there and did want to touch on the war is peace and this is going to be kind of hard for me to articulate. I, I'm not going to do a great job doing it, but I, I know in this uh, in this group we've kind of been trying to touch on this idea that um, the war hoax, a as it currently exists, exists for a specific reason. And again, if you just follow my logic here, it's the war hoax is peace. It is for peace. We maintain the illusion of war to kind of satisfy that hunger, that uh, that appetite, that hum that humans have, that humanity seems to have for conflict, for drama. And it, it seems without the war hoax, hey, maybe, you know, people will actually start committing violence against each other. So again, I, I know I'm doing a not a great job representing that idea, but I think that's kind of what this is getting at. The the war is peace is, is kind of getting at if we're able to maintain the illusion of war, we can at least satisfy that hunger, that that innate rage and anger that humans tend to have and and we can funnel that we can funnel that in, into something something less harmful so just to add my thoughts about the the war is peace and then um we covered the ignorance is strength but i, I mean this is full on this stuff could not be more true especially in our modern age and and again when we think about the illusions of war we we can see that war war is peace that that's a true statement and then we can think about freedom is slavery and i know SG year here in the US. So how often have you heard coming up that this is the freest country in the world and have freedom and think about your freedom? Do you feel free? I mean, I'm in the US. I don't feel free. Yeah, it's like you're, I, I definitely know what you mean. It's like you're free. But you know, a second you take some sort of action, it's like there's like police is like any sort of freedom outside of the boundaries that they give you will be met with consequences. So you may have the freedom to do that. And if you do have the freedom to really do anything, but uh, you have to understand, yeah, you're going to, there'll be some serious blowback depending on what activity you engage in. So it, it's really just this kind of like phony freedom. And it even, even in school, the, the word freedom is an ever changing, has an ever changing definition. So people from 1900, say 1910, for example, their idea of freedom would be totally different than to say our idea of the freedom in the year 2019. It's never really, that's never something that's even mentioned. I would just add that um, what I'm getting at is you have relative freedom. And again, you're right. This is a hard thing to pin down and I'm not trying to pin it down. I'm just think about just economically. Are you economically free? I mean, you need money to buy food and, and you need economic resources uh, to support yourself, to, to have an apartment, to have a house. So I think in that sense, this illusion of freedom is a is a form of slavery. Yeah, and to even expand on it, like when you say with economics, it's like, yeah, dude, uh, growing up in this sort of system, the only way I really know to feed myself is to go to a store or a restaurant and purchase something, purchase some food. It's not like me or you, anybody really has the ability to just go into the wild and really uh, have any experience to feed themselves off of nature or whatever you want to call it. We, we're really uh, dependent on this system to support ourselves. I think Fly Fisher did an extremely good explanation of freedom is slavery because while you were talking about it, I was thinking about, and even though it's a hoax, but I was thinking about perhaps some slaves in Roman times. 
and they're slaves and they know they're slaves and they're fed up with it and then one day their slave masters decide just to propagandize them every day telling them that they're free oh you're free you're so free you're the freest people and being on parades about freedom day and all this and nothing really changed for them they just got propagandized all their life that they were actually free and the only difference is is now they accepted their slavery that's right yeah and i and again, it, this is such a, a nebulous kind of term to, to nail down, but you kind of hit it on the head, Dai P, and that's pretty much exactly what I'm trying to get at, is, is just at least in this definition of freedom, it is a form of slavery, because you're, especially in the U.S., you're built up and you're said, oh, you know, you got freedom, you got freedom. Well, what does this freedom actually entail? This freedom entails getting propagandized all the time, watching hoaxes on TV, getting a nine-to-five job, paying a slumlord for a, for a shitty tenement. If freedom is slavery in the sense that if the slave is under the illusion that he's free, that's what makes him a slave, then if we're not able to bring the system down, then by breaking that illusion and seeing the bondage that we are born into, in that, is that where perhaps lies the path to actual freedom? That's right. I Like you said, man, I always got the uh, freedom in my skull. Yeah, <laughs> you're on it, man. Well, that is an excellent way to wrap up the call. I'm sure we can continue a discussion in the after call. And with that, I would like to give a big, big thank you to TNG for making these calls possible. We honestly could not do it without him. And uh, everybody should be giving a big thank you to him. Big thank you. Exactly. That's it. Nothing else. No. <laughs> but yes, thank you, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this call. And uh, we'll be back next time with Chapter 3. And that's a wrap, boys. <laughs> be a good uh, robot you can probably cut that out you can probably cut that out do you walk the path Parts of someone else's dream Is your life lived In the shadow of a myth Someone else's story and glory Why do you think that this world is real at all Do you believe or you are told To accept the waking dream of another as your own To be lost in the crowd of voice unheard Is that what you desire? Or do you hold onto a thought?
of your own making Create the dream anew No one but you can create your destiny If not you, then who? If not you, then who? Once I thought as you Once I was lost and ashamed Standing at the crossroads of fate Of fate Once I dreamed a dream of a different reality Now my fate is only what I presume Caught in the net, a hive of confusion Let go of your beliefs Learn to unlearn, understand That the world is your dream And no one else's Once you were a shadow, but now you are a dreamer. Once you were a shadow, but now you are a dreamer. Caught, caught in the net, a hive of confusion. Once you were a shadow, but now you are a dreamer. Once you were a shadow, but now you are a dreamer.